0: Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com.
1: Mid-career hires will join the Foreign Service at mid-career ranks. That's the idea behind the State Department's Lateral Entry Pilot Program. Congress mandated the pilot to help find people in global health and strategic competition with China. For more, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with the Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Bureau of Global Talent Management at the State Department. Lucia Piazza.
0: So, the Lateral Entry Pilot Program, it's a congressionally mandated program, and it's designed to allow us to recruit and hire candidates into the Foreign Service as Foreign Service officers at the mid level. We are hiring, for those who are interested in the grades themselves and understand our system, we're hiring Foreign Service officers at the 03 and 02, which is our mid level, and we are focusing the program on specific areas that are priorities to the Secretary of State in which we feel like we could truly benefit from this outside expertise.
1: What are some of those skill sets that you guys are particularly looking at here?
0: The seven focus areas are cyberspace and emerging technologies, climate, environment and energy, global health security and diplomacy, strategic competition with the People's Republic of China, economic statecraft, multilateral diplomacy, and lastly, consular management.
1: And so what is the career expectation for those who are selected for the lateral entry pilot?
0: We are hiring foreign service officers, or also sometimes known as generalists, and the expectation is that once they enter the foreign service, they are a member of the foreign service, and the expectation is that they will follow the same career path as the entire foreign service. So promotions over time, based on performance, and increasing responsibility over time.
1: Got it. And so how will applicants be selected for the program?
0: Right now, if you go to USA Jobs, um, you'll see that we have seven, seven different vacancy announcements, one for each of the target areas. Those vacancy announcements are open through February 10. I will tell you that we've had tremendous response, like more than we had expected, which is super exciting. Candidates must meet the minimum qualifications as laid out in the vacancy announcement. And all candidates who meet those minimum qualifications will then go to what's called a qualifications evaluations panel. And that's a panel of experts from our assessment, so the people who select foreign service officers as a day-to-day job, as well as subject matter experts in these focus areas. And as I said, we have a lot of people applying for this program. So the qualifications evaluations panel is going to help us narrow the number of people we invite to the Foreign Service Officer Assessment to the ones who are the most competitive. So there will be qualified candidates who don't get invited because we are only going to focus on the very top candidates. We are hiring a total of 35 people. That's our goal under this program for 2024. And that's split amongst the seven focus areas. So as you can imagine, you know, there aren't a great number number of opportunities. So we can't invite you know 100 people if we know we're only filling three or four slots per group.
1: You already mentioned how the department is looking for people with particular skills, cyber savviness, economic expertise, some of those examples there. But uh, this is, of course, the Foreign Service and working overseas is part of the job here. Is the department expecting any kind of expertise in a language for these people who are looking to join?
0: So it really depends on the specific job category. So, I mean, for instance, uh, our experts in China will have a certain expectation of certain proficiencies that would include language. We're using that to differentiate the grades in which we will hire folks. So to come in at the higher of the two levels, there's an expectation that the candidates will come in with the required proficiency in a foreign language, and that's detailed in the vacancy announcement. I just want to go back very quickly. So I talked a little bit about the qualifications evaluations panel. And then invitation to the Foreign Service Officer Assessment. I want to make it very clear that the Foreign Service Officer Assessment is what we use for every member of the Foreign Service who is joining as a Foreign Service Officer. We're not differentiating, so it'll be the same assessment. And the candidates who are successful in that assessment receive a conditional offer, and that offer is conditioned upon receiving medical security and suitability clearances as required. And much like the Foreign Service process for our entry-level colleagues, colleagues will go onto a rank-ordered register. And they are hired based off of their position on that register.
1: It sounds like really in all regards, everyone who is brought in through this lateral entry pilot program, they really seem to be brought on board basically the same way as anyone else who would be joining the Foreign Service. I imagine that also means that they would also be taking the entry level test, the Foreign Service
0: officer test. That is one difference in this program. So the Foreign Service Officer Test is what we use essentially in place of minimum qualifications, right? So I would just think of it as different paths to the FSOA, the Foreign Service Officer Assessment. So for entry-level colleagues, they take the FSOT. They also have a QEP, so we select the strongest candidates amongst that pool, and then they go to the FSOA, whereas our lateral entry colleagues apply via the the vacancy announcement, which think of that as the analog to the FSOT and the the minimum qualifications, and then from there, QEP and into the FSOA. So it's just a a different pathway, much like we have internal pathways for certain folks. We have a program called the Mustang Program, and that's for folks who are currently at the State Department who wish to join the Foreign Service at the entry level. There's a pathway for that to the FSOA, and there's also a mid-level conversion pathway for civil service personnel who want to join, who are at the State Department. This is now the fourth pathway, but all to the same thing, right? Everyone has to meet and pass that incredibly rigorous examination in order to join.
1: Got it. And you mentioned already a little bit some of the qualifications, some of the things that candidates have to go through in order to uh, make it through the other side and become a Foreign Service officer. You mentioned the security screening, kind of the medical screening, things of that nature. Are there other requirements for the program that I'm missing here that we should bring up?
0: Each one of the vacancy announcements has very specific sort of educational and professional experience, the criteria that are outlined, and those are tied to that specific focus area for the secretary. I
1: guess to broaden out the the scope of the, the questioning here, ultimately, why is the State Department opening this program up? Because it seems like, you know, you guys have been getting a pipeline of uh, people coming in the standard way of uh, people who are Earlier in their careers, considering a career in the Foreign Service and going through the procedures that way. So why is the department going forward with this lateral entry program?
0: The basic answer is this is congressionally mandated, right? So it's in the NDAA that we, we have to create a lateral entry program. However, I will say, I mean, like, I think there's there's a real need, especially for these emerging areas where we either don't have the background or the expertise, especially, you know, as things change so rapidly, there's a real need to bring in folks who are also interested in diplomacy, who want to be foreign service officers, but who come with this wealth of experience in these very, very specific areas. When the secretary and others looked at you know, this program, we thought to ourselves, how do we use this very cool tool that Congress is, is, is putting out there for us to accomplish these goals? So it's a, it's a real happy marriage, actually.
1: As far as the application window for folks, what timeline are we looking at for people who are interested in signing up? How long do they have to do this?
0: So the vacancy announcements will close February 10th. From that point, it, you know we anticipate having completed our qualifications evaluations panel, and our an invitation to the FSOAs should go out sometime in April, and then we hope to start scheduling folks for the FSOA as soon as May. So timeline for the vacancy announcement is said February 10th, but we are moving very very fast because a we have a need, and b because you know Congress is expecting us to deliver, and we're going to. Deliver.
1: Okay, got it. What are the plans for the next phase of this pilot program? What are you guys looking to do beyond this initial cohort?
0: So the beauty of the pilot program is, right, we're going to we're gonna run this iteration. We're going to see what worked. We're going to figure out what didn't work. Were we able to attract the skill sets that we need? Like I said, we've had tremendous uh, response. Um, our social media engagement is kind of through the roof. We had over 4,000 people sign up for a webinar that we offered on Monday. So we're going to take a look at what we got. We're going to see what worked. We're going to tweak it as necessary. And then the plan is to open the vacancy announcement again later this year for a second round because we we will be running the pilot program for five years.
1: Lucia Piazza, Deputy Assistant Secretary of the State Department's Bureau of Global Talent Management, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before.
3: So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So, again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission.
2: Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Right. Throughout your career, you piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned, or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs?
3: Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts Uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore, where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work, and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one size fits all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career, there's no one size fits all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's gotta be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules, can we make it a menu, can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role. So I think we have such great opportunity again with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways.
2: This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership?
3: There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also— a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins,